Hi everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the Legal Wolf podcast which was set up to raise awareness of and tackle the stigma surrounding mental health not only in the UK where I'm based but around the world. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Roger who is from Lebanon. Hi Roger. Hello Stephen how are you? I'm good thank you yourself? I'm great thank you for having me today. You're very welcome. So, first of all, I know you've sent me a spiel before this recording, which I think is brilliant for you to read out. So, by way of introduction, if you read through that, and then we can dissect what you've read. All right, excellent. So, my name is Roger Shaftura. I'm from Lebanon, like you said. I'm uh, the founder of a mental strength and wellness platform called Reconnect, and I'm based currently in Dubai. And I'm also a mental health uh, human rights activist. Um, so I'm, I'm going to tell you why. I think the question always comes, why would you choose to be a mental health uh, human rights activist? Yep. Um, so I'd like to answer that question, why I actually got to start uh, Reconnect. Um, I, I, I like to, like you said, I prepared something because I really wanted uh, this to be a great uh, opportunity to highlight um, stigmatization, but also the, uh, what is really happening uh, in terms of human rights in my country and in a lot of places around the world, because what is happening in Lebanon is by no means the only place where what is happening is happening. So, like I said, um, I'll refer to three stories in, uh, um, in my introduction. So, this, the first story um, is by referring to an American psychiatrist called Peter Bregan. So, uh, Dr. Peter Bregan is an American psychi uh, psychiatrist uh, who's now in his 70s, and he's earned the title of the conscience of psychiatry. At the age of 18, about 50 years ago, young Peter Bregan walks into a psychiatric hospital, not as a psychiatrist, um, but uh, intuitively thinks that life can break anyone. And when he saw the inhumane conditions, the isolated, broken, humiliated, and heavily medicated patients, he knew intuitively that those conditions are counterproductive to the mental and emotional well-being of those patients. And since he became a psychiatrist five decades ago, he has been talking about love, empathy, and human connections as the best form of healing, and has a large number of books on the counterproductivity of the drug culture that is now called psychiatry. Um, my second uh, story uh, comes from one of my favorite philosophers, and he's from the UK. He's a British philosopher called Alan Watts. Now, Alan Watts, uh, in a lecture on psychiatry in the 70s, uh, speaks of research done back in those days that show that one third of patients with psychiatric conditions healed within three to five years through psychiatric treatments. But the, I think the more, uh, um, I would say, strong the, or the stronger insight is that an equal one third healed within three to five years through treatment with a general practitioner without the use of psychiatric uh, treatments. And uh, Alan Watts is known for his humor and he finishes off, he says, the only difference between those who went to a psychiatrist and those who went to a general practitioner is that those who went to a psychiatrist went out poorer. Um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. okay, and my, my, my third story is uh, from Dr. Gabor Mate. Uh, Dr. Gabor Mate is a Canadian physician and uh, from Hungarian origins. He's a thought leader in medicine. 
and is one of his uh, famous speeches on drug addiction. Uh, Dr. Mate describes people experiencing drug addictions as humans who are dealing with traumas and suffering. And instead of sitting them down and asking them why they're suffering, we instead isolate them, criminalize them, and put them at the fringes of society. Now, the same is happening in mental health. We are treating people with isolation and their symptoms with biochemicals instead of asking them why the suffering and addressing the suffering. Um, and we are numbing the suffering and creating even more suffering instead of addressing the root cause of the suffering. So based on these stories, um, because these are stories uh, that came in my own recovery, so I'll re-describe who I am. So based on the three stories I told you, Stephen, I, um, my name is Roger Shakhtura. Life broke me. And when it did, I was kidnapped into psychiatric inhumanity and forced into biochemicals, which destroyed me even further. And along with stigmatization, took me into poverty. But I am one of the 66% who healed from a psychiatric condition. And I did it within seven months through love, empathy, and human connections. Now I am and choose to remain isolated on and on the fringe of society as mental strength means that even when the entire multi-trillion biochemical industry is subjecting people to abuse and human rights violations, the best place to be fighting back is actually from the fringe uh, because this gives us the power to expose human rights violations, bring justice to victims and create the community mental care that I wish to see in this world. So I started Reconnect on Happiness Day, which is on March 20, 21st. And eight days ago, I lost all rights to my daughter due to insanity. Um, so the questions I would like to ask today are, one, isn't it insane that we still allow inhumane conditions and inhumane practices in psychiatric hospitals when we know that the solutions are as simple as empathy, love, and human connections? And my second question, isn't it insane that we know that 66% of people can heal from mental conditions within three to five years, yet we put them on lifetime of doses of psychiatric biochemicals, knowing that the success rate of non-psychiatric treatments are equally effective? And my third question would be, isn't it insane that our societies still isolate, stigmatize, and even push into poverty, those experiencing mental health conditions for very good reasons, and even go as far as ridding children of their rights to parenthood for life when the conditions are temporary and can be healed through love, human connections, and empathy. And the last question, is it me who's insane? <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it, it fascinates me, this importance that is put on medication now i had a chat with someone who used to be the special rapporteur to the un adanius puras on my podcast yeah. who spoke about this at length and do we put too much emphasis on medication when it comes to people with a mental health condition because it it, it seems to be the first thing that, that people go to is medication unless you're probably in a more developed part of the world whereby the use of psychology is being brought in more and more to discuss your emotions, feelings, discuss your problems and go down that route of recovery rather than first protocol medication. Um, 
And there was a video that I saw, and I'm just going to look up the exact title of it. Um, because the video fascinated me. It was, um, let me just find it. It was by a Dr. Jess Taylor, mm-hmm. um, who did a video on uh, called Why Ending Mental Health Stigma Will Never Happen. Now, this video is on TikTok. Now, people will know I don't usually use TikTok as a reference tool. I don't necessarily think it's good for that, but there was this video that, that was on there. And she kind of said that the whole rhetoric of mental health is towards the psychiatric profession. So it doesn't matter how often you try to reduce the stigma. It's not designed to be reduced because it's designed in favour of the psychiatrists and the mental health hospitals, yeah. which is which is a way that I hadn't thought of thinking it that way, but I can see where she's coming from. Um, which kind of leads me on to your first question in terms of why we still allow inhumane conditions and inhumane practices in hospitals when we know that the solutions are as simple as empathy, love and human connections. How would you answer that question, Roger? Why are we still treating people, obviously not in all countries around the world because some have improved, but in certain ones, why are they still in inhumane conditions and in inhumane practices? Okay, and um, first, I, you know, actually, it's really funny because I had actually the same question pop up to my mind today. I mean, the whole story of stigmatization, why is it even important? I really, honestly, in my opinion, after going through this journey, it's, it's, it's really not important and it cannot be changed. And I am one of those people who think we should work on the solutions, not on the stigmatization. Um, the solutions are much more important. We need to make sure people are, are, are good, they're well, and they are treated in, with the humanity and with care so that they are, they are able to transcend whatever they go through because they can. And once they do, uh, it's up to people to, uh, I mean, people will always talk about, they will always find a reason to judge somebody. So we're fighting not just stigmatization, we're fighting judgment. So judgment will always be there, um, um, and and I think it's I, I think it's always better to focus on the solutions. Now, going back to why the inhumane conditions, why the inhumane practices, why the overmedication. So I was in a psychiatric hospital. I was in two actually, forced into both of them by force. With even even the approach is inhumane. You're literally beaten by security staff or kidnapped under your house, and that is already traumatized. Uh-huh. Now. I've reached the conclusion, I've, you know, Stephen, I've shared with you some information. I've been documenting personally um, uh, horror stories in the Lebanese psychiatric field. And the, 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 uh, the answer to that question is super simple. The, uh, the let's say the Lebanese uh, health, um, um, Ministry of Health, their budget is geared towards medication and uh, hospitalization. So they've given the hospitals and the doctors the incentive, the financial incentive to utilize that budget on hospitalization and on um, 
uh, on medication. They did not ever give them the incentive to cover mental health in terms of psychology, right? So they don't get paid for sitting with people. They get paid for putting people in hospitals and then shoving drugs in their mouth. Now, I'll tell you what is happening also on a mass scale. And this is not just in Lebanon and in a lot of advanced places. People get diagnosed within 10 minutes. And then the, the, this, is di this diagnosis is the basis for repeat um, spending and repeat usage of drugs. And the drugs are also still another whether direct or indirect incentive. In some countries, um, uh, uh, direct payments are still an incentive, and that is the conclusion I've reached in my own country, is that psychiatrists or psychologists are being given a direct incentive, which is already an unethical practice when it comes to pharma, uh, pharmaceutical usage, but in also in a lot of places, it's an indirect incentive. Um, so as long as the dominant financial player and that industry is um, psychiatric um, um, uh, industry and the pharma and the budgets of governments are still geared towards medication and hospitalization, then change is not gonna happen. Now, but however, historically change always happened in places like the UK. I know it's, it's nowhere near perfect, but uh -huh. I mean, uh, psychiatric hospitals, I think have been closed since 1986 as isolated wards and now have been integrated into the medical system. Um, um, Australia had, uh, Italy had instances, and they always came when like thousands of people came together and like filed lawsuits against hospitals and doctors on the same day. Um, and I think uh, the only change can, that can ever happen on that front is not by counting on governments, is not by counting on pharma, is not by counting on anyone, but the voices of uh, people who are being diagnosed in five minutes, put on lifetime doses of medication and violated in psychiatric hospitals. I mean, it's really shameful to know that I, I, I found out this. I mean, it happened to me, but I didn't know it was that um, widespread. There are kidnap squads in Lebanon. Like if you have a fight with your wife, really? yeah, you can call the psychiatric hospital and like say, take her, she's crazy. So you could drive someone, you could trigger somebody into, you know, and you know, I mean, we, we both know you can be triggered into anger. You can be triggered into a psychotic state by different reasons but then when you when you when you get to that phase the system has allowed for private kidnap squads to do, take people put them in hospital without diagnosis like i was never even diagnosed in that hospital and if you see actually the amount of drugs they give you every day or they give patients every day you know that it's driven by by pharma uh, and 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 that this is being financed because in what um, medical practice tells you that you give um, anybody 15 to 20 pills with every meal? Like, what are these pills for? Why are they too many? And what does it do except turn humans into human ghosts in psychiatric hospital? And this is exactly what is happening. So you give them the incentive and then they're gonna use it. And you know what? Just give them pills, like the maximum dose where we don't kill them, where they're still alive, but they're not dead. So, I mean, how can we get away from that model and make it more like what Alan Watts said, mm -hmm. being, being treated through your general practitioner yeah. without med medication? And mm -hmm. it's... 
it, it's a brilliant thing that he says at the end, saying the only difference is that those who went to see a psychiatrist come out poorer, which is which is absolutely true. Um, how can we change the shift? What what are the solutions to this problem? Um, look, I'm I'm um, in the perfect place. I'm here in the UAE in Dubai, and I'll give you an example of what this country is doing. Um, you create diagnostic manuals, you penalize doctors who don't follow them, and at the same time, you educate people on um, what are the methodologies for diagnostics. Um, you know, like um, there's now here in the UAE Wellness Strategy 2031, and a big chunk of it is actually geared towards mental health. If you, if people know that they have rights, if no, if people know that they are protected by the law and, um, and that practitioners and hospitals are not penalized, like here a, penal a, a penalty in the, in the UAE for a hospital means they shut them down, okay? Like human rights violations in the UAE cannot happen. And if they happen, you in 24 hours, you can close down a psychiatric hospital or a hospital or, and you can get a, a practitioner um, um, have his license taken away and thrown out of the country or never to return, they would ban them, okay? So I think the solution is, is that governments, where possible, need to be part of the solution. And, um, you know, when we talk about stigmatization, for me, the solution is not the stigmatization. The, the solution is creating awareness. Most people are being, I'll just give you a simple statistic. 80% of people with depression around the world have vitamin D deficiency. Now, can you tell me how many psychologists ask their patients to go and do a vitamin D deficiency test before they tell them that they are manic depressive? 10%, right? So, so people need to know that when they are, um, when they go to any practitioner, they need to ask themselves the questions. And, you know, most people like think that psychologists, psychiatrists, and doctors know it all, you know, but also Alan Watts same, says the same things. It's like in, in the same podcast that I referred to and which I actually kind of got this info. He says, psychiatrists, psychiatrists are textbook people. And if for a psychiatrist to be successful, he cannot be like an art uh, kind of critic. You see something and then you look at the history. He says psychiatrists and mental health experts need to be the masters of insanity. They need to be able to walk into the depth of the uh, schizophrenic to be in their shoes and then walk out of it to be able to really understand it and address it. And this is not happening. You know, even Dr. Gabor Mate, he says, he says doctors now, they spend 80% of their time in paperwork and 20% of their time being, being uh, doctors. And the same thing is happening in mental health. Um, you have textbook yeah. people that uh, look at symptoms. And this is happening in medicine. This is happening in mental health. We ask people, so did you go through the symptom? Did you go through the symptom? Did you go through the symptom? Well, we're human going through the same kind of symptoms. I mean, if you subject people to, like in, in, in Lebanon, uh, into a destruction of their city within like a day, and then if you send them all, do you diagnose them all for, for manic depression? Of course they're depressed, <laughs> right? So as long as we're looking at symptoms, uh, we're, we're treating symptoms with, with, with biochemicals or the wrong solutions. Um, so I think it's also the responsibility of whoever goes to um, 
to a um, mental health uh, expert to also ask themselves the question. And I think it's our responsibility to give that information. For us, this is what we're trying to do with very limited means. Uh, we're, we're, this is exactly what we're trying. We document different kinds of practices. We're, we're, we're um, um, you know, making content about uh, things like family constellation therapy, like uh, regression, um, different form of practices, because you know, the solution is not always just at kind of a general psychologist. People need to know exactly what is right for them in order. You know, some people have childhood traumas. Some people have war traumas, some people have, et cetera. And it's important, I think awareness is the solution um, and um, people knowing uh, their rights and their responsibilities when it comes to when they are diagnosed. Yeah, I mean, I know obviously in the UK we have mental health laws and people who are detained under the mental health that do have rights to appeal that if they're not happy with being on a section, hence why lawyers like myself go in and help the vulnerable have their voice heard when they feel it's unheard. Um, now, I'd like to talk about Reconnect, yeah. this wellness platform. Um, it sounds brilliant. Would, would you be able to give us a bit more information as to what Reconnect does, what services it offers, who it offers it to? All right. Okay, so Reconnect is, like I always say, it's a mental strength, wellness and happiness platform. So we're not so much about repeating the same messages um, that is being directed by an entire industry. We actually are um, uh, focusing, uh, well, we adopted the, um, an, actually an American, um, uh, it's, it's a, let's say, philosophy that came out in the US in the late 80s. It's called the seven dimensions of wellness. And the idea, it's a coaching, actually, um, a coaching kind of technique, but it was, um, it was um, um, like the whole theory of it was actually comes out of a medical background, um, a doctor, an American doctor, who says for us to be at our best human condition, we need to look at our, at our individual life from seven different dimensions. So we've got the physical health, our nutrition, our exercise, We've got our emotional health, our psychology, and um, social, whether it's art or music or whatever form of expression, intellectual, how do we keep uh, stimulating our own mind? And what kind of knowledge do we want to know and adopt into our life? What is our philosophy? Um, then there's the occupational, what kind of routines do we integrate into our professional lives in order for us to be also at the best uh, possible condition? And then there's the spiritual, what each chooses, of course, uh, for themselves. This is regardless of religion. But uh, for us, um, we focus a lot on um, 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 intuitive practices or meditative practices, um, um, philosophies for life, uh, general philosophies for life, and a lot on diversity, inclusion, and acceptance. And the last but not least is the environment, whether the environment you live in and you create for yourself or caring for the environment around you. Now, um, so what we, do, what we do is we actually formed a community-driven mental uh, strength and wellness platform, and we formed partnerships under each dimension, a nutrition, mental health experts, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, um, coaches, uh, authors, uh, organizations, NGOs, etc. And what we do is we present their solutions while we sometimes create our own solutions as well. Um, so we present these um, 
we always like we do events, we do um, retreats, um, we do um, different activities and content. And what we try to always kind of our uh, USP uh, or our main message is that in order for you to be at the best human condition, you need to adopt the seven dimensions on a daily basis. So anytime we do anything, we really actually present these seven dimensions and we show people the different options that they can pursue in their life to support their mental health journey. And these are things that they can adopt to, you know, because like I said, some people have a vitamin D deficiency and they have obesity and they're going to a psychologist to treat that. Now you have a physical depression. That's a physical depression. Unless you address the physical depression, what, whatever you do at the psychologist's chair is not going to help you. So you need to look at other angles of your life. And this is what we're doing now. Um, and, you know, like um, Reconnect came out of my personal journey. And um, I've healed um, myself. I worked on myself for seven months um, based on the seven dimensions of wellness. And we started also talking a lot about um, we, we share a lot of information about like what I shared with you today, statistics. We want people to know they can heal because people, a lot of people are suffering from what they think are lifetime conditions. And, um, uh, you know, through the content that we've been sharing, we've been triggering a lot of questions, a lot of interesting conversations. And I can say I'm grateful that we've been part of the healing process, the ones we know at least of five to six people uh, that came to us. They said, we've been going through suicidal tendencies for tens of years. Like we go to hospitals when we are like, we've cut our hands and like losing so much blood. And they tell us the cuts are not deep enough for you to see the psychiatrist. Um, and um, yeah, <laughs> funny enough. So a lot of people are coming to us and saying, we've been seeing, you know, psychologists, we've been seeing, Etc. and nothing is changing for us. How can you help us? And this is where we do. We literally, I mean, I've, I've, I'm not a psychologist and I don't take the responsibility of taking anyone's place, but I can, um, you know, I always say love, empathy and human connection simply by sitting and listening to someone. And this is where we can break the stigmatization. All we need to do is to ask, tell me what's going on with you. Gabor Mate says it. Peter Bregan says it, this is the solution. It's by listening to people, understanding what they're going through. And I think through that process of building Reconnect and creating that community of multiple practices, I've become knowledgeable enough of what kind of practices can help certain conditions. And then I start guiding, or at Reconnect, we start guiding people to these different practitioners, different alternative solutions for them to adopt into their life, to choose for themselves and to adopt. And when they are adopting them, they, thankfully, we know that they're in a good place. Uh, last week, also through the um, Global uh, Mental Health uh, Peer Network, which you are a member of, yep. we were able to help a lady who got misdiagnosed and forced into a psychiatric hospital in Kiev, in Ukraine. We helped her get out yeah. of there within 48 hours, just by simply talking to her family, and talking to uh, a practitioner from Ukraine that just told her what a diagnostic process looks like. She got diagnosed in 10 minutes. I asked her, so how did you get diagnosed? She said, I'm diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I'm like, no, 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 hold on. You cannot be diagnosed. And, then, and, and through the process of asking her a few questions, I understood she was in a withdrawal from antidepressants. They asked her and they still diagnosed her. And it's known that you do not diagnose someone for a mental illness while they are undergoing a withdrawal from any drug 
You cannot diagnose people in, in 10 minutes. You cannot diagnose with bipolar disorder if you don't do a thyroid test, a vitamin D deficiency test, and you spend at least five to six sessions with them to really understand the, um, yeah. the history. And then you also sit with their friends, you sit with their husband, you sit with their family to, to really validate all of that information. So diagnostics is, is, or mental health diagnostics is a process. It's not a 10 minute thing. It's not as simple as that. Um, and um, this is what we are raising awareness of. And this is what we are telling people. Even if you're, you know, like um, diagnosed with something, you most likely are misdiagnosed. And why don't you go through a proper diagnostics and we guide them through that process. And um, yeah, and this is, this is what we're doing. We are really trying to be a force of uh, positive change and impact in people's lives. And it doesn't matter if it's one or two or three or four or five, we do it. And we know that this is going to help us grow and make impact on the long run. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I agree that you can't realistically be diagnosed within 10 minutes. Um, I suspect, and this is purely just playing devil's advocate here, are there enough psychiatrists around? Because are the psychiatrists that are there, are they under so much pressure with so many patients that it's literally working like, you know, you know, see you for 10 minutes. I know from discussions with people in India, they have queues around the block to see a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist cannot literally just sit down for a long amount of time Mm-hmm. and I literally see them and it's done within five ten minutes and then they're out the door yeah. does there need to be more people going into the field of psychiatry to alleviate the stress on the current psychiatrist does there need to be more funding in order to improve yeah. the way that it works I mean it, yeah. it, it seems to be an impossible task with there being so few psychiatrists and the pressure that they have can be debilitating at times. Okay. Uh, look, um, you know, like <laughs> even in my, uh, in, my de- in my custody case, the psychologist that diagnosed me with bipolar disorder says she did a speed diagnosis. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. interesting. Do- do- yeah, speed diagnosis. Now, I- I'm, I'm going to tell you something. I think... Uh, um, I, I really don't think it should ever be the issue to diagnose people simply we don't have time to diagnose them because like when you mm-hmm. look at the suffering that you create out of yep. that limited time if, if that's the reason that's unethical that's inhuman and this is one of the human rights violations we're talking about this is abuse of your profession because you swore as a medical practitioner to protect the lives of people. Now, when you diagnose them in 10 minutes, you already put them in the, um, what do you call them? You put them in the, uh, besides the physical impact of biochemicals, you know, Dr. Peter Bregan, he says, we are treating people with biochemicals when they don't have a biochemical imbalance, right? And these drugs are actually creating violence. They're creating uh, cases of suicide. They are creating so much uh, impact on families and family dynamics. I mean, you know, like I'm in, a, in, I'm in that situation. So if, 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 if a doctor does not put in the right time to diagnose a person, they need to start thinking of what impact they're having on like the ripple effect 
I mean, you are putting, you know, when we talk about stigmatization, you are subjecting people to stigmatization and stigmatization is the most destructive thing anyone can go through. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, like it happens with my own family. Um, I had to disconnect from my own family because my own family just choose to believe the psychiatrist that told them that their son is, is, is mentally ill um, uh, three years ago. Um, if I give them a proof of misdiagnosis, they're like, no, the doctors are right. And if you give them, uh, you know, proof that 66% or, you know, uh, statistics that 66% of people heal, well, there's a whole industry telling them that they don't heal, right? Yeah. So, um, so you are, we are throwing people into hell when we diagnose them with 10 minutes. I'm going to tell you uh, uh, something else. I, I could maybe understand it in a bit of a hospital setting, but I've been to a yeah. psychiatrist and in my, an outpatient, that same psychiatrist who actually misdiagnosed me in the psychiatric hospital. Now he has a private practice and what is he doing in his private practice? He's diagnosing in 10 minutes. And we had people document the same doctor all over again, right? So the same doctors are doing the same practices and I'm going to give you, I did a calculation for my psychiatrist. I would go and see him 10 minutes. He sees one person every 10 minutes. In one day, he makes $8,000, excluding what the pharmaceutical company is giving him. So my question here to you is it, are they doing it because of lack of time or abundance of money? <sighs> yeah. Um, yeah, there are two ways to answer that um <laughs> but it's interesting when when you said about when you're diagnosed you are essentially being categorized into a box yeah and it's it's very easy to give a diagnosis and it goes on your record but when you try and remove it from your record that can be extremely difficult um, and I think that is where the problem is, particularly if you've been given a diagnosis within 10 minutes, it's on your file and you yeah. go and see a private psychiatrist who diagnoses you fully and gives you and says, well, no, it's not this. It's say some, something else, for example. Yeah. It is very difficult to get stuff like that removed from your records because yeah. once it's on, it's it's easy to go on your record, but it's difficult to get it removed. Yeah. Um, it, it shouldn't be difficult to remove. No. Um, if there is clear evidence and proof that no, this isn't what you're suffering with, well, then it should be removed from, you, from your records. But yeah. for some reason, the way the system is set up, the way the system is designed, it's very easy to categorise someone. But then when you want to remove that label, if you like, it's, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, I've noticed some, some clients go, go through that of, of mine in past years. Yeah. Um, and it, it is a shame that the system is set up that way is yeah. designed that that way mm -hmm. because it 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 shouldn't be it, it should be more fair it should be more transparent and obviously not all psychiatrists are bad there are good psychiatrists yeah. out there yeah. um i personally know a few from my interactions with them in my job but 
the system then there needs to be more transparency within the system um, in order for it to work fully. Yeah. Um, but I mean, Stephen, I think you know. Speaking of records, um, what you know, the most difficult kind of record that you could ever receive as a one-time patient of a psychiatric condition is the life lifetime of judgment and stigmatization. I, I'm I'm going to tell you, you know, like yep. I I you know when I made this introduction, I said took me into poverty. Why does that happen? So I went to a psychiatric hospital. The moment you walk out of that psychiatric hospital, nobody, I mean, I was a country, I was a country manager. I was in general manager position for a multinational. I was a regional director for a uh, multinational, a British multinational. Um, and, um, you know, I used to make really good money. I used to live in villas. I used to have whatever that I want in my life. I used to travel three, four times a, week, uh, a year. I lived the life that I created for myself. And the moment I walked out of that hospital, nobody wants to recruit you. Your friends don't want to be your friends. Everybody's treating you as an ill and sick and incapable human being and taking decisions even on your behalf. And, you know, I came to Dubai. Yes, COVID started. But at the same time, I came to Dubai and I'm like, you know what? This all happened in Lebanon. I can come and start a, a page here. I came and it followed me here. And I realized, I came to the conclusion one day that the only way I can survive now is standing up on the roof, carrying a microphone and saying I'm mentally ill. <laughs> you know, I'm and I'm doing something yeah. about it, you know? So, uh, and I don't, I always say I am misdiagnosed because I know for a fact that I was misdiagnosed three times because, you know, I, it took me three years. I lived with psychiatric drugs and chemical destruction and stigmatization for three years and it destroyed me and it took me into poverty. And then I, re I knew that I was misdiagnosed three times. And like you said, once it's on one record, it's easier for the next psychiatrist. You know, if we were talking about the 10 minutes diagnosis, the moment he hears you were diagnosed by someone else, he says, oh yeah, you're, bi you're bipolar. So it just becomes a continuation. Um, and then, like I said, the ripples are not just on paper. The ripples are on your life as a human, on how you are perceived, on how, on your capacities to find a job, on uh, your capacities to be able to live a normal and peaceful life. You get subjected to a lot. You get subjected to even, in my case, I got subjected to forced medication without even knowing a few months ago, and my family almost killed me. Like they medicated me when I was off medications for six months and I lost consciousness while driving, you know? So it, it's, it's so easy for, um, uh, for one instance, um, you know, when you really get broken and yes, life can break you and you could be triggered into anger. And then, you know, in a place like Lebanon, you could be kidnapped and placed in a psychiatric hospital, never misdiagnosed. But then, you know, that instance, creates so much ripple effects on your life, you know, and, 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 um, and, and this is, you know, like, and, and then I go to diagnostics, like diagnostics need to be protected by laws. You know, you're a, you're a mental health lawyer. If we want to protect people, we work with laws, laws that are not just on paper, laws that get executed. The UAE, like I said, does an amazing job. You know, I went, I had, a, I had a problem with my finger the other day. It just needed a pop with a needle. 
a pop with a needle. I asked the doctor, I, I didn't have my passport. And he said, uh, I said, why don't you just pop it? He says, it will be a medical malpractice. I could go to jail for it. So a doctor in the UAE can go to jail for popping a finger with a needle if I don't have my passport, right? This is how we protect people. This is how we force psychiatrists and psychologists and doctors to follow diagnostic procedures. We penalize them when they don't, and we tell people what are their rights and what is it that they need to know when it comes to diagnostics. Um, um, I, I really think, you know, like people like you, people like the um, uh, Global Peer Network, um, NGOs, governments um, have a big role to play. We can only, I think, you know, like we cannot change stigmatization, but we can protect people. And we can protect people by getting people like you and me to keep speaking up and keep raising awareness. And the second is to get victims to speak up against their aggressors, because this is aggression. When you get diagnosed within five minutes with, um, uh, with the manic depression without a vitamin D deficiency test, that's aggression on you as a patient. That is abuse of your rights as a patient. So people need to be aware of how diagnostics are made. And then there's laws that need to protect them when they are abused. Yeah, I mean, I could talk to you for hours, but um, because there is so there is so much to discuss, there's so much to talk about. Um, but I mean, in terms of wrapping up this episode, because I would probably have you on to, to discuss other things as well. I always like to end with a fun, lighthearted question because it can be quite deep talking about mental health. So. My fun question to you would be, if there was to be a movie made about you, mm -hmm. who would you want to play you in your own movie? Okay, so obviously I've been, I've been getting the, you know, some comments recently about my great <laughs> looks, uh, that I look like George Clooney. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you know, George Clooney, actually, I, I, I and, and this is a calling for the John, George Clooney uh, Justice Foundation um, that I actually wrote them a few days ago to shadow my case uh, in Lebanon. And yeah, I would love wow. for George Clooney to, um, um, uh, to actually play that role. Uh, he is already playing it and I'm already creating my own, 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 own movie. And um, that movie, uh, can I tell you about it? Because yeah, I know you want to wrap yeah, up, course. but I'm going to also wrap up. No, no, yeah, 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 yeah. So that movie, um, and it's based also on my Jungian archetypes. So I'm a hero and a magician and a great father. Uh, so I'm going to focus wow. on these. So I'm going to be playing these three roles, which I'm already doing. And my role in that movie would be um, to save an entire country from uh, human rights violations and abuse in the mental health. And it will end up by closing a couple of psychiatric facilities and putting a few psychiatrists in jail because this is very dangerous. And we are already documenting hundreds of cases of violations and human rights. And despite us, despite myself spending the last two years talking to every organization you know of in the world or you don't know of, nobody took any, any action nobody from the united nations to the world health organization to 
whoever, you name it, we've brought this to the attention of the priests, of the lawyers, of the mental health program, of the ministry of nobody, nobody did anything. So in that movie, I'm the one who's doing it. <laughs> and, and we're already in process. And, and, you know, I know you have some listeners in Lebanon and most importantly in the United States and in the UK. Uh, you know, we're a small country and uh, you know like you know like not, not just a small country we're a country that is very corrupt and every day there are stories of corruption coming up on Lebanese TV nothing people cry about it for 24 hours and there it goes it continues uh, I've made it a conscious choice to globalize this topic so that people especially in the United States and especially in places like UK and Europe hear what we are talking about today and to step up to put pressure on a government to do so, um, to stop the violations, because they are aware of the violations. They are protecting the violations and they are part of the problem. They are funding the violations. Again, maybe consciously, maybe not consciously, it's no longer my problem. What I care about is that there are children being subjected to human rights violations. It's not just adults, it's not just anyone. You know, I, it's so funny that you know, like they tell you in Lebanon, they're aware that kids are being mixed with adults in psychiatric hospitals because there's no alternative. Create an alternative. How are you going to protect children if you're going to keep throwing them in the same places where actually adults are being violated? We have, we have documented cases of electrocution, deaths in psychiatric hospitals in Lebanon. There are people that are being subjected. I was subjected. I spent my first 48 hours beaten to death, Stephen, to death. They would walk in. If I'm sleeping, they'd wake me up and, and they'd call my name and they'd punch me on my face. These are the kind of violations that being, people are being subjected to. And, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for society to tell us, you know, like in England, you have, you have something that says, shed your shit. Forget the past and shed your shit. Right? So they, isn't that, uh, especially people suffering from mental health, they tell them, shed your shit. In Lebanon, you know what they tell us? Shed halak. Shed halak is like, man up. It's the same word. It has the same okay. word, actually, shed and shed. People still tell me, shed your shed, forget the past. No, because that past is not a past anymore. It is a present okay. that people are living, that are children experiencing, and there are, there are lives and families being destroyed because of this. My own family is destroyed. My own rights to my daughter have been destroyed because of that. So it's not the past. You know, yes, I, I've forgotten. I've healed from the beating. I've healed from the violations. I've I had to work so hard on myself to stand where I am standing today. But I choose to stand for the present, not for the past. I'm standing for the present. And the, this is happening now. It is happening in the present. And it will continue to the future unless I, you and the U.S. and the U.K. and legislators and lawyers and mental health advocates and human rights violations stand up and say this has to stop. Yeah, and I think that is a perfect end to the episode. Um, I'm sure the listeners will have found it very informative, very insightful. Um, we should send it to say. George Clooney too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, who, who, who knows, Roger? He could very well be listening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, we, 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 um, could, we could manifest that too, you know, we could send a couple of Instagram posts and stuff like that. <laughs> I've become good yeah. at like, I've become good at annoying people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, working, working in human rights means you need to be annoying. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, that's 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 true. But it's same, it, same it's, as being a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's been a pleasure having you on, Roger. And thank thank you, thank you for being a guest. Thank you. An honor for me to be with you, Stephen. Have a great day.